Hello friends, welcome back to our study in 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's always a privilege to welcome you to Bible study. In your Bibles or on your mobile device, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, last week we looked at the first nine verses of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, we introduced uh, the church in Corinth to one another last week. Today, we're going to begin at verse 10, where Paul will begin talking about some of the problems that he has been uh, told about concerning the church in Corinth. So, beginning at verse 10, Paul is answering the first problem he's going to deal with, and it is a problem of division in the church. So, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Uh, For the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to be revisiting uh, this topic of divisions in the church in Corinth. And really the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is about conflict over different issues, different ideologies there in the church in Corinth. Uh, I mentioned to you last week that one of the ways I summarized the church at Corinth is they were a very gifted congregation, lots of gifts of the Spirit, charismata, gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit was lacking. Uh, fruit of the Spirit, particularly love. So you had a lot of gifts operating there in Corinth, and they were not mature enough to allow those gifts to operate in love. And as a result, division was rampant there in the church in Corinth. So Paul is pleading with them to agree, to uh, be united uh, in the same mind, with the same judgment. Let me say just a word about Christian unity. Um, When I talk about Christian unity, I think when the Bible talks about Christian unity, it's not talking about organizational unity. We don't have to be part of the same organization with the same structure, with the same bureaucracy, with the same mission uh, teams or outreach or agencies. I think the Bible is a little more profound than that. The, 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 the unity the Bible is talking about really is a spiritual unity centered on Jesus Christ. Um, and I know in our own age, I'll be very transparent here for a moment, in our own age, I feel more unity with a Roman Catholic or a Presbyterian or a Lutheran who has a high view of Scripture, who has a high Christology, a high understanding of who Jesus Christ is, a high appreciation for the historic church and the creeds of the church, then I would feel in unity with some other, another United Methodist that might, can't be described in those kind of phrases. So I can have spiritual unity with some other people Uh, that I don't have organizational unity with. I might have organizational unity with some people, and we may spiritually be miles apart. One of the things I think is a core conviction among Protestants is that you don't have to have organizational unity to have spiritual unity. I think that's a Protestant conviction, which is why there are thousands of denominations. And that's okay. 
because even though we have different bureaucracies, different ways to manage our homes, our Christian homes, our Christian family, uh, our denomination, we can be spiritually united with one another around Jesus Christ, around a high view of Scripture, around an appreciation for the historic church and the creeds of the church. So when you hear Paul calling the, the people in Corinth to... to um, unity. He's not calling them to uniformity. Those are two very different things. You can have spiritual unity in the midst of great diversity. Uh, the church in the world today with the largest amount of diversity, I think, would be the Roman Catholic Church. When you look at a Catholic from Europe, a Catholic from Italy, and a Catholic from Zimbabwe, very, very different people, very, very different cultures. Uh, but, but theologically, there's some unity there. So when, when you hear Paul talking about unity, when you hear Paul talking against divisions, he would be the first to admit there's some people with whom you should divide. But he's encouraging the Christian community to come together around Jesus Christ. Let me just read that verse again. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name by the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says something about Jesus Christ before he ever says anything about unity. And that's why he goes on to say that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So he's wanting them to be united in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Let me go on. Verse 11. He, he says in verse 11 why he knows what he knows about the church at Corinth, because he, he founded the church at Corinth. He spent 18 months in the church of Corinth, but then he left and he made his way to Ephesus. But he's getting reports while he's in Ephesus about what's going on in Corinth. And it seems like the Corinthians were very much a people that were prone to moving from fad to fad spiritually. And that's why the issues are creeping up so quickly in the church at Corinth. In some ways, that feels very much like the contemporary American culture. But in verse 11, Paul says how he knows what he knows about what's going on in Corinth. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. I uh, don't know anything else about Chloe. Uh, here's the only place Chloe is mentioned. We don't know if Chloe is in Ephesus or if Chloe is in Corinth. But somehow, Paul is hearing from Chloe's people about the quarrels that's going on in Corinth. Uh, I do want to point out Chloe is a feminine name in the Greek. But to say Chloe's people, perhaps she was a uh, businesswoman, a prominent businesswoman, uh, perhaps she was a female that uh, led a house church either in Corinth or in Ephesus, uh, and her people would be participants in that house church. Uh, perhaps we're talking about Chloe's family, even some freedmen and some slaves that would be part of Chloe's family. We don't know exactly who Chloe is or who Chloe's people are, but we know that Chloe's people somehow have made it to Paul and are telling Paul about the problems that's going on in Corinth. In the ancient world, in the ancient Roman world, um, travel was not easy, 
but remarkably easy to what we think it should have been in the first century in the Christian era. So travel happened frequently. Travel between Corinth, where Paul established this church, and Ephesus, where Paul is at when he writes the letter, would not have been, um, you know, prohibitive. So he's hearing from Chloe's people about what's going on in, in, in Corinth. So again, you see the, connect, the connections between the early Christians in, in different places. Verse 12, and Paul's going to go on to talk about, um, to illustrate uh, the disunity that's occurring there in Corinth. In verse 12, he says this, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? So it does appear that there were some other Christian teachers uh, there in Corinth that perhaps were there with Paul or there after Paul. And uh, people were attaching themselves to these other uh, preachers, these other early Christian preachers. I guess there's always been something in human nature that causes us to gravitate toward people that we want to create as celebrities. I even notice in local congregations, uh, people will gravitate toward one pastor as opposed to another pastor. We just do that with people. And it appears that in Corinth, there were different groups. One that would say, I follow Paul. Perhaps this is the group that was staying true to everything they heard from the Apostle Paul when he was there. Here's another group that says, I follow Apollos. We know from the book of Acts chapter 18 that Apollos was a Jew from Alexandria. He was brilliant. He was uh, a great orator. Uh, he was a great intellectual. Perhaps the group that's saying, I follow Apollos, uh, is the intellectual group there at Corinth. And then so the next one says, I follow Cephas or Kephas. Uh, Cephas is the Aramaic word that in the Greek is Petros or rock. So Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. Uh, we don't know if Peter was there when Paul was or if Peter came later or just some of Peter's um, followers went to Corinth. But evidently there's a group uh, saying, I follow Peter, I follow Cephas. And then the last one that's referenced here is the group that says, I follow Christ. And you know, they may have been the most self-righteous of all the different groups. They may be saying to everyone else, you know, you follow Paul, you follow Apollos, you follow Cephas, but we are the true Christians. We follow Christ and Christ only. You see this same type of division in the body of Christ today. And you see Paul arguing against it here as he says in verse 13, is Christ divided? He is going to argue throughout this whole letter that the body of Christ is one. Everyone that belongs to Jesus belongs to everyone that belongs to Jesus. Now, again, that relationship to Jesus Christ and understanding as to the person and the work of Jesus Christ is, is essential. But once you belong to Jesus, you're part of the body of Christ. That's why Paul uh, counteracts these, these groups by saying, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Um, Paul here 
is, uh, was trained uh, as a great Greek rhetorician. Rhetoric was an important study in the Greek world. It was a study of how to be an orator, how to participate in oratory. So he's using rhetoric here when he asks these questions, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh, you see his rhetorical skill here. Of course, these are all rhetorical questions, and the answers are certainly no. Christ is not divided. The body of Christ is not divided. Paul was not crucified uh, for you. And you were not baptized in the name of or in the spirit of Paul. You were baptized in the name of, under the authority of, and in the spirit of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. We know those were early converts there in Corinth. Verse 15, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then there's almost a parenthetical statement, and I'm, I'm very comforted by what Paul does here in verse 16 in this parenthetical statement after he says he has baptized no one but Crispus and Gaius. He says, oh, by the way, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So I'm glad that Paul's memory was not perfect either. I can identify with that. But he's saying that he doesn't think that he baptized more than the household of Stephanus and Gaius and Crispus. He's not downplaying baptism. You'll see in Romans 6, you'll see him talk about it in the letter to the Colossians. Baptism is important. But baptism's not the central issue. It's not about who baptized you or how you were baptized or how much water was used or how much water was not used. Uh, baptism is important, but it pales in significance to just the proclamation and the receiving of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's just using that as an example here. These different groups that were saying they follow Paul, or they follow Apollos, or they follow Cephas, or they just simply belong to Christ, were probably using uh, the events of their baptism somehow to help make their case. Baptism was important in the mind of the Apostle Paul, but it's certainly not central. It is important, but it's certainly not critical to the following of Christ. You see that in verse 17, because he's going to go on to say in verse 17 what is of utmost importance. He says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what you hear Paul saying here is that he was sent, and the word sent and the word apostle, apostolos, uh, share the same root. An apostle, apostolos, is someone who has been sent. So Paul is someone that has been sent, has been sent by the living Christ, remember his experience with Christ. Christ sent him not to baptize, but he did some of that. He wasn't opposed to that. Not to baptize, but to preach or proclaim the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. Again, in the Greco-Roman world, the study of rhetoric was important. Being a great orator was very important. Paul could do that at times. Uh, I think if you look at 1 Corinthians, he probably could not do it as well as a lot of the people who made their living as orators, great speakers, but um, he didn't want to be a great speaker. He didn't want to preach the gospel with eloquent wisdom. 
And he didn't want to do that because he says he did not want the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. Now, some of the terms here are really important. He raises the issue of preaching. Preaching is central to uh, Paul, is central to the Christian movement. It's that sharing verbally uh, the message. And somehow preaching is uh, a supernatural act. Paul firmly believes that. Preaching and teaching really are different things. Uh, preaching is, is a supernatural act that God is involved in where God is, is using the preacher, using those preached words, the proclaimed words of the gospel to intersect people's lives and to change lives. So he's going to talk later about the foolishness of preaching that it just doesn't seem like much in the grand scheme of things. And I know there are people in the church today that would rather do a whole lot more than just listen to preaching, but Paul was big on preaching. It was the preaching of the Word that changed lives. So he says he was sent by Christ to preach, and not just preach his opinions or preach his ideology or preach the latest fad or preach spiritual growth. The list can go on. He's, he's very clear he was sent to preach the gospel. So you need to understand that word gospel. It is so critical and central. It really is the crux of the matter. Uh, the word crux, by the way, comes from the Latin word for cross. Knowing what the gospel is is, is the crux of the matter concerning Christianity. The gospel, the word itself in the, in the Greek is euangelion. Uh, you get the word evangel, you get the word evangelical, you get the word evangelism from this word, euangelion, which is translated here gospel. The word, English word gospel comes from the old English godspell or the good word. Uh, the gospel is the good word. Um, that is proclaimed. Now the word here, gospel, euangelion, was a word that was well known in the ancient world. It typically referred to some announcement of great and glad tidings. You know, perhaps the Caesar is announcing that he's coming. Perhaps the Caesar is announcing that this weekend there's going to be free games and free bread for everyone in Rome. That would be a new Angelion. That would be the, the announcement that's, that, that, would, that would grab people's attention. So it's not any old announcement. It's a grand and glad tiding announcement. So that's the word gospel. Now, I just want to say as an aside here, the word evangelical is a good word. It's an important word, significant word. It's a word that's from the Bible. Uh, it means to be focused on the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, the word evangelical, for instance, in Europe, most of the time, just means Protestant. Um, to be focused on the good news of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, proclaiming that it is a relationship with Jesus Christ that brings new life. So evangelical is a good word. I'm quick, though, to admit that in contemporary American culture, it has been hijacked. It has been used by just certain people within the church. And uh, for a lot of people, uh, those people who have hijacked the word evangelical um, have greatly, greatly, greatly tarnished 
the word evangelical. Uh, as a United Methodist, our book of discipline says we are an evangelical denomination, uh, which in some ways just says we're Protestant, we're focused on the preaching of the word. Um, evangelical is a good word. It really bothers me when a contemporary culture or, or a media will take a word that's really important to the Christian faith um, and so prostitute that word that it becomes almost a, a, a title of derision in some places. So um, don't, don't let the word evangelical uh, be, be tarnished for you. It's a biblical word. It's a good word. It's an important word. We need to reclaim that word. So here Paul is saying he preaches the euangelion. He preaches the gospel. He preaches the evangel. And that is about Jesus Christ. And he implies that here in the text where he says he was sent not to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So obviously the gospel is closely connected to the cross of Christ. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not the good news of his teaching. Uh, Jesus really taught nothing new ethically that other Jewish rabbis were not teaching in the first century. Uh, almost everything in the Sermon on the Mount can be found, I perhaps would even say everything in the Sermon on the Mount, could be found somewhere else in some other Jewish rabbis of the first century. So the gospel is not just good news about the teachings of Jesus. It is tied to the cross. So the gospel is the good news of who Jesus Christ is, what he did in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and I would add the giving of his spirit to people. That's the gospel package. That's the good news of what Jesus did. And when you talk about what Jesus did, you have to have some understanding of who Jesus was. If he was just a great teacher, then obviously... None of what he did that final week would have been anything more than the death of a martyr. But because of who he was, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and then the giving of his spirit to his people um, was something unique, something phenomenal, something of cosmic importance. Because he was God incarnate, um, then those final days were much more than just the death of a martyr. There have been a lot of martyrs throughout history. There have been a lot of human beings who have given their lives for a cause that they held dearly. But the good news of Jesus, which is tied to the cross, which is a sort of a code way of saying it's tied to the work of Christ in regards to salvation, in regards to redemption, that is the gospel. I even hear the word gospel being used in a lot of uh, different ways, and sometimes the definition of gospel gets stretched far beyond what the New Testament would recognize the gospel to be. So here Paul is saying that he came to preach the gospel, and he doesn't want the packaging to obscure the gospel, the eloquent wisdom, words of eloquent wisdom. He wants to preach it simply. Uh, John Wesley was adamant about simply preaching the gospel to make sure that everyone, regardless of their intellectual capabilities, can, can hear and receive the gospel and receive the one about whom this good news concerns, Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I, I didn't come to preach with eloquent wisdom. I came to preach the gospel because he didn't want to do anything to obscure the message, lest the cross of Christ 
be emptied of its power. So that's the content of the gospel. This is probably a good stopping point. Next week, we will finish chapter 1 as Paul continues uh, to talk about how the gospel in Jesus Christ is the antidote uh, to disunity. Uh, The gospel in Jesus Christ is the way that we find spiritual unity. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your commitment to serious Bible study. And uh, I'm looking forward to our journey through 1 Corinthians. God bless you.